Welcome to the podcast version of Sunday Miscellany, which differs from the radio version for rights reasons. We hope you enjoy the programme. You wouldn't think making bread in a kitchen in Dublin could lead to meeting a film star, a Hollywood legend, but that's what happened to my mother. My mother Sally's brown bread began life as a source of great amusement in our house. When she first began making it, it never stuck together. We would mockingly offer each other a spoonful of mum's bread, which tended to present in crumbly bits rather than slices. But mum kept wrangling her various ingredients and experimenting with different methods until she finally came up with her own successful recipe, Sally's Brown Bread, a damply delicious bread that tasted rich, nutty and wholesome. She wasn't secretive about her recipe, but was quietly proud that all her efforts had culminated in such a triumph. Opportunity knocks in the strangest of ways. In 1989, I landed my first acting role in the Abbey Theatre. Joe Dowling had invited renowned American actor Barnard Hughes to play the grandfather in Kaufman and Hart's 1930s comedy, You Can't Take It With You. I was cast as his granddaughter, Essie, having blurred the truth a tad when I said to Joe Dowling that, yes, I could indeed dance. Oh, yes, ballet. No bother at all. Barnard Hughes, or Barney as he became known to us all, had an unfortunate accident, a fall, during our dress rehearsal. He was brought to the Black Rock Clinic, where I found myself that weekend, visiting Barney with some home-cooked solace in the form of Sally's brown bread. Barney subsequently wrote a thank-you letter, informing my mother that she had created two things in her life that would guarantee her entry into heaven. One was me, the other was her brown bread. So after that, whenever I found myself in New York, I would bring some of Mum's brown bread for Barney. On one occasion, I was overdoing a press junket for a film and I grandly used a courier to send some to Barney in the Broadway theatre where he and his wife, Helen Stenborg, were acting together in Noel Coward's play, Waiting in the Wings. Helen earned a Tony nomination for her performance as a former leading actress now in a nursing home and Barney played her adoring stage door Johnny, bringing her a bunch of violets every time he appeared. They celebrated their real-life 50th wedding anniversary during the run of the play, which starred Lauren Bacall. Barney, it turned out, had been told by his doctor that even Sally's brown bread had to be taken in limited amounts, and so he shared it with the rest of the cast. When I told him I'd be back in New York soon for my film's premiere and I'd be bringing Mum with me, he said, bring her to the play. Lauren Bacall, he told me, had announced that she wanted to meet the brown bread lady. So we made plans to introduce them to each other after the show. At the premiere, I discovered that my normally unassuming mother had some natural instincts which were not out of place on the red carpet. I told the photographers it was my mum's first visit to America and to my delight a few of them asked, could we have mom in the picture? Photos done as we headed into the cinema, one of them called out, welcome to America. Sally O'Dwyer didn't miss a beat. She turned to give him a royal wave and generously announced that she was happy to be here. The next night we went to the play and I brought mum backstage to meet Lauren Bacall. We climbed flights of stairs to the dressing rooms, but neither myself nor Barney had expected quite so much chat from the rest of the cast. Award-winning actress Rosemary Harris asked Mum for the finer details of her recipe. Did she use bran, yoghurt? 
As she and others kept mum talking, I saw a young man come up and whisper to Barney. It seemed the legend was ready to meet with mum. Mum gave me another regal wave, dismissing me, even as I told her that someone was waiting for her downstairs. Eventually we got her away. I looked down the stairwell. A lone figure in a belted raincoat was standing in the dim light waiting. Waiting for an Irish woman whose brown bread had made her a celebrity in a Broadway theatre. Barney and I hovered in the background as Lauren Bacall greeted my mother like an old friend. I was amazed. I'd briefly met Bacall before and found her formidable. But now she was warm and relaxed as she chatted to Mum. So lovely to meet you. I tasted your wonderful bread and I had to meet you. Thank you for sending it to us. Mum was less of the red carpet diva now as she smiled shyly. Thank you was all she managed to say by way of reply. I tried to congratulate Ms Bacall on her performance. You were wonderful. Her grimace in response intimated she didn't believe me. What other shows should she see, Barney? Lauren Bacall was determined my mother was going to have a good time in New York. Definitely contact at the Lincoln Centre, she continued. It's dance theatre. Oh, I have such a crush on the leading guy. But wouldn't you know it? He's married. She rolled her eyes and grinned at my mum. He's very handsome. Mum relaxed and the two women laughed and chatted together. When we left with Barney and Helen to go for supper in Sardi's restaurant, I took one last look over my shoulder at Lauren Bacall. For just a moment, maybe I imagined she would have liked to join us. Mum whispered as we got into a yellow cab that she was just like she is in the films. I still have my mother's brown bread recipe. My father wisely decided to type it out and print it for posterity. But after all these years, I must confess I've never tried to make it. I think, along with the wheat German yoghurt, my lovely mother somehow put some magical, mysterious essence of herself in there. And that's what made Sally's brown bread so special. It begins with joy, the surge of exultation you get when your team wins. The winning players cavorting in delight around the field, the beaten side collapsing to their knees. Then the speeches and the presentation, the trophy raised on high to cheers from the faithful, followed by the lap of honour, new energy flowing through tired limbs as the victors thank their loyal fans. And there are the celebrations, 
the crowded bars toasting the team's achievement. Like a long-awaited new arrival, the trophy is paraded on tour. Later, pictures will emerge of the silverware gleaming in old haunts as well as in other unexpected places festooned with the winner's colours. Green and white. The Ireland rugby team's recent Grand Slam won at home in Dublin in front of ecstatic fans on St Patrick's Day weekend surely made even the most cynical citizen briefly proud to be Irish. It wasn't just the fact of the success, but the style with which they won. A swashbuckling abandon that seemed to hark back to an earlier, more carefree time. The media are always quick to emphasise the historic nature of any big win. So it's appropriate to remember the teams that came before, the players that did and didn't make it. So many of them since becoming shades as James Joyce, surely the number 10 on any Irish writer's rugby team would put it. Jack Kyle, Tom Kiernan, Ray McLaughlin, Barry Bresnan. Green and white. My old school, Gonzaga College, wears the same colours as the Irish team. We were always ribbed mercilessly for this. Rugby was its main sport, but for many years the school achieved absolutely nothing except the dubious distinction of being the butt of endless jokes. Gonzaga conceding a pushover try from its own scrummaging machine. Gonzaga losing in a game of unopposed. No wonder other schools struggled to take us seriously. Confused by what exactly was meant by the requirement to wear boots, I played my first rugby game in Wellington's. Another contemporary, now no longer with us, turned out on the pitch wearing a scarf and gloves. If there was a rich comedy in our ineptitude, there was sometimes tragedy as well. Here is another shade, the ghost of Michael Brennan, the boy who died 50 years ago this year on the main pitch, age 16, while playing for Gonzaga. How did the teachers, the coaches, explain to us, a small community of boys numbed by shock and grief, that rugby is still only a game? It's hard not to feel sorry in other ways for some of our earlier coaches over the years. They were an idiosyncratic bunch. Mr McCarthy, the cork hurler who had never handled an oval ball before he became our trainer. Mr Wordy, the taciturn Northern Ireland soccer fan, doing his best to inject us with a bit of Ulster steeliness. And Father Brennan, teaching us how to pass, the ball held reverently like a ciborium in his two hands while we stood on that tussocky back pitch, knock-kneed, shivering in pristine shirts and shorts, as yet unsullied by the horror of mud and grass. Notorious for producing legions of lawyers, maybe some of the school's alumni occasionally seem a bit too pleased with themselves. Perhaps the reputation for being uh, self-assured comes in part from Gonzaga's much-derided interest in the classics. It was said to be the only school in Ireland where the line-out calls were in Latin and Greek. Now I hear a voice calling out of my own past, our old Greek teacher, the late John Wilson, an All-Ireland medal winner for Cavan, back in their 1947 victory in New York's Polo Grounds. 
I am back in class, and he is dangling my untidy, ink-stained copybook between finger and thumb. Dipnon kunos, he says with disdain. Dipnon kunos, a dog's dinner. Which was a fair description of the kind of mess we'd made of many of the games our school had played in. Until that same recent Grand Slam March weekend, on St. Patrick's Day, when Mr. Wilson's grandson, Paul Wilson, lifted the Leinster School's Senior Cup on behalf of Gonzaga College for the first time ever, beating Black Rock College, the blue bloods of the school's game. There are still plenty of jokes. One WhatsApp message says there won't be a cow milked or an avocado peeled in Ranelagh. Another wonders if the lads will now be speaking Latin in coppers. Like their senior Irish colleagues, in time they will move on. But already they seem immortal, these young men, their day of triumph already fading into the mists of the past as they too become ghost heroes in green and white. It was the last thing she would have expected or indeed wanted. But when Camille Souter pulled off her trademark black crochet berry in my garden a good many years ago, all I could think of was John Keats' glorious poem. I met a lady in the meads, full beautiful, a fairy's child. Her hair was long, her foot was light, and her eyes were wild. Camille Souter was no belle dame sans merci. She was notably gentle and unpretentious, despite the acclaim she received for her painting and the many honours heaped upon her over the years. She died recently, at the age of 93, and had been working till very near the end, only reluctantly leaving her beloved studio home on Ackle Island to spend her final year with her daughter Natasha in Dublin. But it was those lines about long hair and wild eyes that came to mind that evening, when, in response to a cheeky request across the supper table, she revealed her usually well-hidden hair. It was exquisite, an almost waist-length mane of glowing pewter shaken across her face. Almost a crime against beauty to hide it, we all agreed. She just laughed and stuffed it back in the berry, out of the way, she said. It was one of those revealing moments that you knew would never be forgotten, Perhaps because it was almost a revelation of her work. She wasn't interested in painting beauty, yet, as she explored the mundane in her early years through abstract expressionism, later more figuratively, the result always had an eerie beauty, 
even during the period when her preoccupation was with raw, bleeding lumps of meat. Camille probably didn't consider the famous beret a trademark. She wasn't concerned with personal externals. She was a painter who lived in and for her art. And if you met her, she never seemed to be overtly observing. She was too well-mannered for that. But the eyes were deceptive. Her earliest work was on primed newspaper, with the print still visible. Her earliest influences were Juan Miro, and earlier still, Paul Clay. I don't like pure abstraction, just as I don't like pure representation, she once said. And throughout her career, her work was a reflection of her surroundings, abstract landscapes from the years she lived on Calory Bog in Wicklow, through to the representations of fish and wildlife from her long years on Ackle, and always flowing. She never used an easel, preferring, like Jackson Pollock it has been noted, to work on a table to allow the flow to be as detailed as possible for all aspects of the surface. There was, of course, a chink in the artist's preoccupation, and that was her dedication to her beloved grandchildren. She counted 19 of them when she died at home with Tash. About ten years ago, a small oil featured in a group show at a gallery in Clare Morris in County Mayo, and the size made me hope that I perhaps might be able to realise a lifelong ambition to own a piece of her work and add it to my tiny collection. Not a prayer. It wasn't for sale. It's for my grandchildren, Camille sent back the message. The closest I've got is a limited edition Gicle print that she agreed to make for the Irish Museum of Modern Art series that included such other eminences as Sean Scully. And it reflects one of her sometimes angry preoccupations, a fighter plane coming down in flames entitled We Don't Want Blood. It was made at the height of the Gulf War. Camille Souter was never detached from reality. She was prolific, but only within the confines of the studio. She destroyed as much as she allowed onto the market, and only a very rare few collector friends gained access to the cottage in Dork. Not that she was a recluse, despite not even having a telephone. You could always have access to Camille's company. Shortly after six each evening, she would cross the beach road to the pub opposite, known locally by the name of its owner, Lourdes, and settle down with a whisky sundowner. It was noticeable that Lourdes' pack of cheerfully yapping little dogs always had a special welcome for Camille. And when you left the island after a visit, a highlight would have been the half hour you'd had with Camille. During visits to Dublin, she was fond of late-night strolls around the red brick neighbourhood where Natasha and her late husband Peter's beautiful house was located. And I remember an occasion that was almost otherworldly. With a bit of work being done on my house, there was a skip outside. Fortunately, it was still nearly empty, the practice of people using the cover of darkness to offload their own housefuls of rubbish hadn't yet quite taken off. I say fortunately, because another piece of youthful hijinks was in operation. A gang of what I suppose I must call high-spirited youths had set fire to the contents of the skip and added an accelerant. It was the fire brigade's flashing light in the small hours that wakened me. And when I went out clad in a dressing gown, there was a small audience, whether appreciative or otherwise, I wasn't sure. Among them was Camille, standing slightly away 
absorbing the view of the leaping flames. Then, without acknowledging anyone, she moved silently on, head bent, disappearing into the night air like a wraith. At her next exhibition, I looked for signs of influence, but found none. Camille Souter was English, born Betty Pamela Holmes, but was nicknamed Camille by her first husband, the actor Gordon Souter, when she contracted TB, an homage to Dumas' tragic heroine, La Dame aux Camélias. But it was the year she spent in Italy which really settled her into her chosen field. Among her many awards was the Emma Distinguished Career Award in 2000 and her adopted country's highest artistic recognition when she became a C of Estona in 2008. There were retrospectives at the Douglas Hyde Gallery in 1980 and the Ulster Museum in 2000, and she was an honorary member of the RHA. Her work is represented widely in galleries here and abroad and prized in private collections. The Mirror in the Sea, the aptly named and monumental overview of her life and work by Garrett Cormican, was published by Whites of Dublin in 2006 and remains a fitting memorial. I'm going to tell you a story. Once upon a time, a warrior was sent on a mission to collect a chest full of wonderful treasures. He knew he needed to find not just brave and strong individuals to come with him, but people who were happy and content within themselves, because this was going to be a particularly long and hard journey. He gathered a group, off they went, singing their songs. The spirits of their ancestors and their gods were coming with them, and they made great progress. They entered into new lands, where the vegetation and geology were different. But they were still singing their songs, and their ancestors were still with them. One day, they started to slow down, seeming to sink into some kind of trance state within themselves, and the warrior was impatient. He asked the elder of the group, We were making such great progress. Now what's happening? The elder spoke slowly. We have moved so far, so fast, that we must now sit down and wait for our souls to catch up. This was a story told, Osgwelga, by the young storyteller Liam O'Flaherty to his father Garod on Inishmore in March 2020. It was the start of a project I had been cooking up for some years called Carrying the Songs, after Moya Cannon's poem of the same name. The idea was to send a story into the world, Chinese whispers style, and to see how it could travel. The project was ambitious and the logistics were eluding me until the coronavirus came along. 
When we were all under lockdown, I realised that people were only just waiting to reach out to one another. I launched myself feet first into coordinating a journey, which would take the story from Inishmoor to Istanbul via Zoom through the mouths of 404 people. I set up meeting after meeting in which one person would tell the story to another, who would then tell another, here too waiting in the now very familiar waiting room. So Garode told the story of the warrior to Ashling, who told it to Cyril, and it had started its journey. But did it stay the same? Well, before it was out of Connemara, it had been replaced with a love triangle and stories of the Ban Rua, a red-headed woman and her ill-fated effect on fishermen. It continued to gradually adapt itself with a force almost magnetic towards its next destination. When Shanachi Papumarahu heard the story in North Mayo, he said, This is very exciting. I haven't heard this story since the 1940s. When I tell it to Trassa in Karataig tomorrow, it will be going home. In Sligo, a young art student described in vivid detail the layout of the floats and nets on the sea, the play of light on the water. These details were not given to her, neither was she elaborating gratuitously, but this was the picture she saw in her mind's eye. In this way, passed through the lens of each individual's own experience, the story was constantly evolving. Robert de Bruce's inspirational spider came into the story near Belfast. And while the strong coastal connections were gone, the story remained about the sea or water until it reached Istanbul 34 weeks after the first story was told. In Scotland, one man heard the story of his own childhood told to him by a total stranger. In Wales, what went into Welsh as oars came out of Welsh as spades. So this poor lad was rowing around in circles on the sea with one spade until he happened upon a second spade. He met the love of his life. They had a spade each and they rowed off into the sunset. The story suffered badly from a dreadful internet connection in Brittany and in France it became the story of a fisherman who became a fisherwoman. As it moved north through Germany, the story became longer, more flowery, and more romantic. An old friend of mine in Duisburg declared himself allergic to this romantic rubbish and he swore to tell the story in three sentences, which he did. I looked on in horror as he pretty much decimated my treasured storytelling project. Yet it only gave the story a chance to develop fresh growth. My friend had converted the mermaid of the story into a suicidal young woman hurling herself into the sea. But the next woman to hear the story from my friend confided in me. I didn't like his suicide, so I made her a mermaid. This was really amazing, as one person only hears the story once. But the trope of the mermaid is clearly very strong in Germany. In Denmark and Sweden, the story concerned a man who found a figurine of a mermaid in a dusty attic. He took the figurine in his pocket and rowed a boat out into the middle of the lake. A storm blew up and capsized the boat. As he sank down, he felt himself being borne up until he was landed on the shore by the mermaid. She was returning him to his right element, as he had done to her. 
In the most northern tip of Norway, the story suffered again when the person who was meant to hear the Sami shaman's version didn't turn up. A woman with a limited understanding of Sami bore the fragments of the story forward. In Finland, an old fisherman found himself in a repetitive spiral of stormy capsizings, near drownings, rescuing by fair maidens, promised fidelity to the same fair maidens and being caught out when the last one turned up. Back to our old love triangle. This story mutated to a polyamorous relationship between the three protagonists and then remained pretty consistent throughout Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Poland, Czech Republic, Slovakia, Hungary, Slovenia and Austria. It dipped in and out of more poetic and symbolic meaning and at one point the bright or light woman was the sky and the dark woman the sea. In November 2020, after a journey through 29 countries and 50 languages, Maral Perk told the last version of the story in Istanbul. And here it is. A small girl from a small village was taking a walk on the beach when she stumbled upon a conch shell. She listened to the shell, ran back to the village and invited the other villagers to listen. Those who listened felt a restlessness, a longing for the sea and for the unknown. Using their doors, curtains and furniture, they made a boat. The whole village sailed for three days and three nights, passing around the shell. Soon they found themselves in a violent storm. When the storm settled and the sun came out, they found themselves on familiar shores, but nothing was the same. The old village was gone and the place transformed. They turned on the girl in anger. She threw the shell back in the sea and a spirit swirled out of it. I am the witch of the seven seas, it said. I am your mother. I have cradled you and called you home. If you stay with me six moons, I'll return everything to you. In a museum in Derry, a collection of portraits hangs clustered together. Striking portraits and close-up. Female portraits by the visual artist Frizz. The exhibition is entitled Peace Heroines and it has been touring venues for some months now as time takes on and on, down and down. 25 years have passed since the signing of the Good Friday Agreement. It's good to take stock to pause and draw a breath and look at our history, at how it's been represented, painted, portrayed. I pass among these powerful portraits and I feel this history, a collective history, undergoing a most necessary correction. There are the trade unionists Inez McCormick and Sadie Patterson and the community organisers May Blood and Linda Irvine. And there's Mo Mulham 
who took off her wig when negotiations were getting fraught and whom certain men could not stand. I explore the context provided. Look, there are the Derry girls, their lives in the 1990s threaded both with the mundane and the unspeakably weird. And look, there's Bernadette Devlin's famous line, unmissable in this exhibition. It's not that women get written out of history, they never get written in. And there's Pat Hume. I know the most about Pat Hume, whose face everyone knew in Derry, whose voice was almost never heard in public, who held everything together in private, who kept the show on the road. While John Hume was in Strasbourg or Dublin or London or Washington, outlining a vision for the future, and wouldn't he be proved right by history, Pat was at home in Derry, answering the phones, keeping the office and family running, calling the glazier when the windows of the family home were broken, the repair shop when the front door was scorched by petrol, poured through the letterbox and set alight. Who'd have wanted to be in Pat's shoes? Yes, there's Pat Hume, holding her grace. After I tour the exhibition, I cross the Guildhall Square, spruce and handsome today, how times change, its multiple little fountains are playing and gurgling, and children are running in and out of the water. Into the Guildhall itself, with its smoothly polished wood and its cool terrazzo floors, and its outsized statue of Queen Victoria in the atrium. Upstairs, passing the great sheets of shining stained glass commemorating the building of the city walls and the colonial link with London's merchant companies, and there at the entrance to the Great Hall, a smaller exhibition has just been installed. John Hume's Nobel Peace Prize from 1998, the medal and citation. Alongside it, two more peace awards, the 1999 Martin Luther King Award from the United States, and the 2001 Gandhi Award from India. I appreciate the extraordinary layers of context surrounding this small exhibition. Queen Victoria, colonial Londonderry behind its walls, Gandhi, Martin Luther King, the Humes, all within a few feet of one another. And although this morning's two exhibitions have surely not been planned together, I am pleased to see Pat Hume's life's work honoured here in the Guildhall, alongside that of her husband. Equal billing, equal footing, the proximity of the Nobel Peace Prize, and a quotation from President Higgins to encapsulate a life grounded in the 1960s vision of civil rights for all. The life of Pat Hume, Michael D. observes, was one of total commitment to community, to the possibilities of peace, to the measures of non-violence that were necessary to assert, vindicate and achieve the results of civil rights. Again, a necessary correction of history, augmenting the language that has gone on in front of the cameras by adding more substance, more grit. I leave the Guildhall and sit in the sun on the steps of the building for a few moments and watch the fountains at play. I'm surprised by the emotional impact that these combined exhibitions have had on me. At the door, a member of the staff has murmured, powerful, isn't it? And has gestured across the square to the museum and, 
Have you seen the other exhibition running across the way? Powerful too. And I've nodded and agreed. Powerful. Powerful is the very word. So much of the work, the patient, silent work of building a future and recasting the past too, goes on away from the cameras, behind the scenes. It is thankless work for the most part, literally thankless, because it's unsung. And heroic. Yes, this is a very epitome of heroism. On this morning's programme, we heard Sally's Brown Bread by Marion O'Dwyer, Ghosts in Green and White by John O'Donnell. The Vivid Art of Camille Souter's Life was by Emer O'Kelly. From the Aran Islands to Istanbul, Carrying the Songs, a script from the recent archive by Alana Robbins. And A Certain Heroism was by Neil Hegarty. The music was from the film To Have and Have Not, Am I Blue, sung by Hoagie Carmichael and Lauren Bacall. Ode to Joy from Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, Fourth Movement, performed by the Royal Concertgebouw Orchestra and Chorus, conducted by Wolfgang Savalisch. Spiegel im Spiegel by Arvo Pert, featuring Nicola Benedetti on violin. And Trilo, a Scandinavian folk song arranged by Ale Muller, and that was a special recording for Sunday Miscellany by Veritas Chamber Choir from St Columba's College, which was founded by pupil Monty Walsh. The soloist was Emily McCarthy and the choir director is Eunan MacDonald. On sound today, Mark Dwyer and Sheila Neveweel. Sunday Miscellany's broadcast coordinator is Elaine Conlon and the producer is Sarah Binchy. And the Peace Heroines exhibition mentioned by Neil Hegarty in his script is currently on view at Leinster House before continuing its tour. See herstory.ie forward slash peaceheroines for more details. And to listen back to this morning's programme, go to the RTE Radio Player or the programme website rte.ie forward slash radio one forward slash Sunday Miscellany. And you can find out more about other RTE arts and culture programmes on rte.ie forward slash culture. You've been listening to the Sunday Miscellany podcast. For more from us, you can follow the programme on Facebook, Twitter, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany.